Greetings and welcome to another installation of our series, Let Us Reason Together. And this is an overview series of the book of Isaiah. In other words, we're, we're taking kind of a, an overview approach. We're not going my traditional verse-by-verse -verse exposition of it, chapter-by-chapter, chapter, because it revisits many of the same themes multiple times, and it often expands on those themes, but those general themes can be summarized. And my goal in this series is to enable you to read and understand the book of Isaiah for yourself by simply pointing out some of the great truths that are contained in it and some of these great themes that run through it. And we know, of course, that much of the book of Isaiah points to our Lord Jesus Christ, showing once again the absolute relevance of the Old Testament to everything uh, in the life of a believer today. So we'll be in Isaiah chapter 10 today, and so far in the book of Isaiah, we've looked at many different things. We've looked at the sins of Judah and Jerusalem being outlined. We can learn many things from those, and we saw that the Lord is not letting those go per the terms of their covenant with God. God is bringing judgment upon them by the nation of Assyria. And he is bringing it upon them for their pride, for their idolatry, for their social injustice, for the many things that they were doing that were contradicting the law that he had given them and the conditions upon which they were living in the land that God had promised. We saw the call of Isaiah, and we saw that he was to give a word to the people of Israel and, or of Judah and Jerusalem to blind their eyes and deafen their ears. In other words, that they would have the absolute truth from God that they would be ultimately and completely accountable to have heeded it and to have heard. Isaiah is calling them back to be faithful to their covenant. Now, there are also in the book of Isaiah, along with this, many glimpses of the future. Isaiah will expound upon something happening to Judah and Jerusalem, something relevant to their present time, but then he often takes it a step further and often takes it to descriptions that, that go beyond the re renewal of Jerusalem that we saw, beyond the rebuilding of the temple that we saw happen in history. Some of his language goes far beyond those and points to a future renewed and righteous Zion. And this righteous leader, this king servant that would come, of course, that's Jesus Christ. And we'll be speaking much more about him later in the series. And right now today, in Isaiah chapter 10, We've called today's uh, Agents of Wrath, and this is called Agents of Wrath because what we're going to see is we're going to take a look at the nation of Assyria and God dealing with them. We're going to see that God is bringing them to bring his wrath upon Judah and Jerusalem and indeed upon the northern kingdom of Israel and upon Syria and other nations. But something more than this the Lord himself is going to turn his wrath then upon the Assyrians themselves. And the question has to come, if God is bringing Assyria to discipline Judah, why then can he find fault with them? If someone is doing the will of God, like the Assyrians kind of were doing the will of God, then does it matter how it is done? Is it justified now that they have done that thing, just because it's, it's working towards the ends that God has purposed? Are they not doing good? And therefore, is God unjust in bringing and turning this wrath upon the Assyrians themselves? It's very important that we get this straight.
Because what is at stake here is our understanding of the very character of God himself and our own disposition with him. So we're going to begin by reading in chapter 10, verses 5 through 19. Here's what it says there. It says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread down, them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, Are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kalno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdom of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion, and on Jerusalem. He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that, I ha that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth, or chirped. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, says the Lord? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. Therefore the Lord God of hosts, will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning will be kindled like the burning of fire. The light of Israel will become a fire, and his holy one a flame, and it will burn down and devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Let's ask the Lord to bless our reading of the scripture. Father God, we praise you this day. We thank you so much for these words. Lord, we are far removed from these, both in time and in culture. Indeed, we even experience a, a new covenant this day, and so there are many obstacles between us and understanding, but Lord, we know that you are the one who can make straight our path. You can help us to understand these things. The power of your spirit and the wisdom of, of your people that you have given them in Christ, Lord, will guide us in understanding these words, and we pray, Lord, that you will be glorified by it. So perfect us this day. Help us along the way, and help us to see you more clearly because of what you have written. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's one of those cryptic passages, and it's got some poetry in it. You may have noticed it's got a couple changes of aspect there. At one point, the Lord is speaking. At another point, he's personified Assyria, and, and Assyria, or the king of Assyria, seems to be speaking, and then it goes back to the Lord speaking again. And so, hopefully you caught all that as we went through. But what I want to point out, first of all, is that the Assyrians 
were are agents of wrath. They are agents of wrath. I want to uh, show that to you here. And uh, first thing we want to see is that the Assyrians were the tool of God. They are described according to the scriptures as his rod and his staff. And they are described as his axe and his saw to bring wrath upon Judah and Jerusalem. And so these are powerful words and they are stunning words. We even see them continue after this passage. Uh, later in the passage of verse 24, he refers to them again. He says, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. And in chapter 7, uh, it also explicitly states this concerning the Assyrians. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people, speaking to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In other words, he's bringing the king of Assyria. God is taking credit for this. And listen to then how he describes it in verse 18. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in on the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. And see, there he even brings Egypt into the conversation, saying that both Assyria and Egypt are serving his purposes like an animal that he could whistle for and have it to do his bidding is how he's speaking of these things. Well, this is profound, but this is exactly what God warned he would do. Way back in Deuteronomy, the end of the book of Deuteronomy is the key to understanding the entire Old Testament. If you understand the last few chapters of the book of Deuteronomy, you'll understand most of what's going on in the rest of the Old Testament. And that's because that is when they're about to go into the promised land that God had promised way back there to Abraham. They're about to go in and he reiterates with them the covenant that he has with them and the blessings and curses upon the land. In other words, if he says, when you go in that land, if you're well behaved, everything will be great and you'll have fruitful families and you'll have safety and security. Your crops will be plenty. Everyone will be healthy. But if you're not good, that is, if you don't obey me, if you turn from me, if you worship other gods, he pronounces then curses upon them. And he says, you know, I'll bring your enemies to attack you and you'll flee before them. I'll bring famines upon you like I brought upon Egypt, the kind of pestilence and things that the curses that came upon e Egypt when he brought them out. And he says, and eventually I'll even take you out of the land. So this is key to understanding the rest of the Old Testament. What are the prophets on about? Why is Assyria coming and attacking them? Well, because they haven't been faithful. It's very simple. And God calls them back and says, look, I'll turn them around if you can be faithful. You could but obey me that these things wouldn't happen. And look how he states it here in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And so he promises this to be true. Later in the same chapter, he says, The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And that refers, of course, to Judah's exile over to Babylon. And so this is uh, important to see that this is always already foretold in the book of Deuteronomy, these things that happened. Uh, who can foretell the future accurately. Well, him who 
can control it. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle, like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. And so this is all predicted in the book of Deuteronomy that he would deal with them in this way. Now, if you might remember, God later makes a covenant with King David. King David of Israel, God makes a, a special covenant with him that one would sit upon his throne forever. And of course, we know that refers to Jesus Christ, who is of the line of David. But we see it here in 2 Samuel. He reiterates this truth. He says concerning this descendant that will come from David. And so he's speaking both of David's sons and descendants that will sit upon the throne, but also of Jesus Christ later. Of course, Jesus Christ did not uh, commit sin. And so this more refers to the earthly kings. Look what it says. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Did you hear that? Isn't that how he just referred to Assyria? That Assyria was like the axe in his hand, like a, a rod or a staff to, uh, to discipline the people of Israel and with the stripes of the sons of men. And so indeed this uh, did come to be fulfilled in these future kings who did not obey God and enemies attacked them. So this is a general thing that the Lord has set up here, that this would continue to happen. Many nations through the centuries opposed or oppressed Israel, even after the exile. Even after the exile and after God brought them back into their land according to his promises, they were still ruled by the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. And so he speaks of these nations in the same way that he spoke of Assyria calling them his servants. He calls Cyrus of Persia specifically his servant, even his anointed one. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and loose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. He used Cyrus to conquer Babylon and to punish Babylon for all that they had done and all the wicked things they had done. And Cyrus is the one that allowed the Israelites to go back to their land. Of course, he still ruled over them, but he did allow them to go back to their land as God predicted, as God called him out here in the book of Isaiah before the man was even born. And so these are profoundly important and, and astonishing prophecies that we have here in the book of Isaiah. Assyria itself would be a wrath upon other nations as well. That in the book of Isaiah, it speaks of Assyria bringing wrath, God's wrath upon the northern kingdom of Israel, which was destroyed and scattered by Assyria. Upon the uh, kingdom just to the north of them called Syria, who had plotted to attack Judah and Jerusalem against Moab for sins that they had committed against Judah. And it's a fascinating look if you go to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk has an argument with God about this very thing that we're talking about. Because how is it that God can send the Assyrians to attack Judah and Jerusalem, but then punish them for attacking Judah and Jerusalem? And Habakkuk has a similar argument with the Lord because he says, writing from Judah in, in a similar time to Isaiah, Habakkuk uh, it cries out to God, 
All I see is wickedness in this place. All I see is your people acting badly and, and committing injustice and other things. And how can you let them do this is basically the gist of Habakkuk's first question to God. And God's answer is, oh, I'm not going to let them do that. I'm bringing the Chaldeans, which are the Babylonians. I'm bringing the Chaldeans to bring judgment upon these people. And Habakkuk, being a little bit familiar with the Chaldeans and what they were like, he said, how, basically, how can you bring that wicked people over here to judge your people? And God's reply to that is, well, I'm going to judge them too. And I'll bring my wrath upon the Chaldeans as well, and they will pay for their sins. And the interesting thing about this is that, you know, that might seem like a non-answer to Habakkuk. It might see that God kind of took the answer uh, and, and just pushed it aside and said, here's what I'm doing, and I'm doing what I want to do. But Habakkuk's response is so important because Habakkuk's response is a model for what our response should be. Now, we should be able to go to God, ask him anything. And I tell people, pray to God whatever you want. He's a big guy. He can handle it. And if you're wrong in how you pray to him or how you treat him, he'll let you know and he'll correct you. But nevertheless, open your mouth to him and earnestly seek an answer. That's what Habakkuk did. And the Lord says, well, I'm not going to let him do that. I'm going to punish them for it. How could you punish our people with that horrible, wicked people? Oh, I'll bring punishment upon them too. So God is explaining to Habakkuk that he is absolutely just in what he does. Habakkuk's response is chapter 3, which is a song. He says, O Lord, I have, the, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Look at Habakkuk's response here. He knows that the wrath of God is justified, but he appeals to him, in all your wrath, remember mercy. And the Lord always does. And he says his response is fear. Your work, Lord, I do fear. Nevertheless, he calls for the Lord to accomplish it. He says, revive it and make it known. And so this is the proper response. This is the truly God-submitted response. In other words, Habakkuk is submitted to God in all this. He's basically saying, okay, you know best and do it, but I'm also going to trust that as you bring all this wrath, you're going to remember mercy. And that's the important thing for you and I to understand, is that as one nation attacks another, and as wars and famines and these things hit the earth, they, they affect both the righteous and the wicked. That, to, that we perish together, those who believe and those who don't, because of these things. But those who believe have greater promises that extend beyond this time. And those who believe have the promises of God that make the future, make whatever the present situation is, seem minor. Paul said it this way in the book of Romans chapter 8. He said, I don't consider the present sufferings worthy to compare to the glory to be revealed in us. So this is fantastic work that Habakkuk did as God inspired him to, to write these things down in this conversation he has with the Lord, so to speak. Look how it ends as we go to uh, the end of Habakkuk, starting in verse 17 of chapter 3. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, 
The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. In other words, this is the very worst of situations for an agrarian society. Really think about this. There's no fruit. There's, you know, all the crops are failing. The, the herds are failing. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And then you'll notice the note at the end to the choir master with stringed instruments. Musical instruction intended for this song to be repeated as it was today. So Assyria is an agent of God's wrath. And this is so stunning uh, that we see they were the tool of God. And Assyria, however, was also an object of God's wrath. If we look uh, at some more verses here, let's look starting, let's pick us up in verse 27 in uh, Isaiah chapter 10 here. He says, in that day, uh, and is speaking to Judah and Jerusalem now, and he's speaking of Assyria, in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulder. In other words, Assyria's burden will depart and his yoke from your neck and the yoke will be broken because of the fat. He has come to Aath. He has passed through Migron. At Michmash, he stores his baggage. They have crossed over the pass. At Geba, they lodge for the night. Ramah trembles. Gibeah of Saul has fled. Cry aloud, O daughter of Galim. Give attention, O Lasha, O poor Anathoth. Madmanah is in flight. The inhabitants of Gebim flee for safety. Let me help make sense of these verses for you. You notice these are all places, these are all city names that are mentioned here. Cities through the various nations that approach Jerusalem. If you were to map this out, it is a course for the Assyrians to follow to come to Jerusalem. And it's as if where we're, we're located here in Kentucky right now, and if I were to talk about this, I would say, oh, there's the Assyrians, they're coming. They've landed at Virginia Beach. They've come through Richmond and Charlottesville, Virginia now. They're coming through the mountain passes and through Charleston, West Virginia, and Huntington. They've crossed the river at Ashland. And oh no, here they come through Lexington. The capital has fallen. Frankfurt is gone. And they've come up through Grath along the river and Perry Park and Worthville. And here they are at our very door. This is what the Lord is saying. Look, look at the poetry and the passion here and the excitement as you're reading this. This is the approach of the Assyrians himself. But look what happens here. He says, this very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power the great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Well, this is a judgment on Assyria. He's going to get within sight of Jerusalem and then fail. The Lord will destroy him. You want to read about it literally happening? Well, all you have to do is turn the pages of Isaiah. Go to chapters 36 and 37. You'll read about the siege on Jerusalem when the leaders of the uh, Assyrian forces come in and actually speak with the leaders of Jerusalem. And they come in and they have a conversation. And then in chapter 37, 
The Lord destroys them utterly. The angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch his god, Dramalek and Sherezer, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after that they escaped into the land of Ararat. Esarhaddon, his son, reigned in his place. The Lord intervened. An angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 of their troops. They, of course, went home after that. And after that, then even their leader was struck down and destroyed, betrayed by his own family. See, Assyria accomplished what God wanted. He wanted to destroy Syria. He wanted to destroy the northern kingdom. He wanted them to come and lay siege to Jerusalem, destroying all the other walled cities of Judah, leaving them just the one, the capital. It was a close call. But then he brought wrath upon the Assyrians. 185,000 men, and later complete destruction of the Assyrians, the city of Nineveh and the rest, destroyed by the Chaldeans and others who rose up against the Assyrians, tired of them being in command of them. And how thoroughly did they destroy Nineveh? Well, Nineveh was lost for a long time, and is barely inhabited to this day, although some of it is under the city of Mosul in Iraq. So how? Why? How can God do this? Didn't Assyria do what God wanted him to do? Well, the key is back in our text. We always turn to the Bible to try to figure these things out. And it's just plain in what we read at the beginning. He, that is Assyria, does not so intend. And his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Isn't that amazing? How can he judge them? How can he attack them for doing what he wanted them to do? The key is what was in their heart. God judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And therefore, God would judge Assyria too. Now, this brings us to what I call a divine paradox. And this is, a, this is an important concept. And I want to walk through this with you here. Yes, God would judge Assyria too. And how can he do that? Well, here's a divine paradox. Here are two great biblical truths that every Christian must lay hold to. But let me start it by illustrating this with a question. Who attacked Judah and laid siege to Jerusalem? Was it A, the Assyrians, B, the Lord, or C, both A and B? Here's your quiz for today. Well, I hope you picked C, both A and B, because as you can see from the scriptures, it was in the heart of Assyria to conquer. They wanted to do this. This is what they wanted to do. They had no notion of doing God's will. They didn't know that, that this is, you know, the good thing to do. And the way they went about it, of course, was completely wicked anyways, completely selfish. Their motivations were selfish. But... It was also the Lord because this suited his purposes to bring about the discipline of his people Israel. So God rebukes the Assyrians for being so proud. Look how he says it in chapter 10 verse 13. 
when he boasts, this is Assyria in, in essence boasting, by the strength of my hand I've done it, by my wisdom for I have understanding. He's boasting about doing this. He says, I'm going to bring a great uh, judgment upon them. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? The Lord judges this, this arrogance of the people of Assyria and the king and all those involved. And that brings us to our divine paradox, uh, which is very important for us to understand. First of all is this, a Christian must hold to these two biblical truths. The first truth is this, God is absolutely sovereign in all earthly affairs. Let me say that again. God is absolutely sovereign in all earthly affairs. There's nothing happening that he um, has no purpose in. And this is important for us to see and understand. First in the affairs of nations, as we saw. Let's go look at some scriptures here very quickly. Look what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. A very interesting poem from a woman who was barren and miraculously led to conceive by the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 6 in the New Testament it says this, When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. In other words, he guaranteed the promises that he gave to Abraham with an oath. He swore by himself, saying that these things will be so, that your people will have this land, that there will be this great and, and shining future for you, that there would be this great opportunity for you and your descendants in the future, as numerous as the stars. So you understand, he gave an oath. He swore that this would happen. He couldn't let it be derailed. He had to go through because he had sworn by himself, with an oath. And this is what the Lord does. He does what he wants to do. Look what it says in Psalm 115. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The Lord seeks to teach Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, a, a very important life lesson. And he says this to, to him. He says um, to him, first of all, for his arrogance, you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet in the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know, look what the lesson is, that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And so he tells Nebuchadnezzar, look, I'm going to make you live like an animal for seven years. And you're going to learn this lesson that I'm the one who's in charge. I'm the one who takes the kingdoms, gives them to whoever you want. Because he was arrogant in his heart. He was looking out over his kingdom and he was saying, look what I've accomplished. Man, I'm awesome. I did all this and did all these wonderful things. And the Lord says, uh, hold on a second. So this comes to pass. This happens to him. And the Lord does this to him. And it's a wonderful narrative in the book of Daniel. And then this is what he says at the end of it all. He writes a song. Yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar actually has his own entry in the Bible here with the song. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does, this is the Lord, according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, 
what have you done? So in other words, no one can stop God, but no one can even ask, you know, even confront him about what is it, what is it you're doing? Because Nebuchadnezzar knows the wisdom now and what God is doing. God is always doing what is absolutely the best thing to do. This was the understanding of the early church. As we come to the book of Acts and Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, he look what he says about Jesus being crucified. He said, this Jesus, speaking, of course, of Jesus of Nazareth, this is the first sermon of the church right after the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see the paradox illustrated there? The first part is God caused it to happen, but the second part is they were accountable for having done it. He says, you crucified and killed him. God delivered him up, but you're the ones who crucified and killed him. And therefore, you're guilty for that. And at the end of the sermon, they were cut to the heart. They said, what do we do? He said, repent. <laughs> he said, repent and be baptized. You will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. They understood this even when they were being persecuted. And they said this in their prayer to God after they received some persecution, some lashings for preaching the gospel and refusing to stop. They say this, they say, um, and we'll back up here, um, for truly in this city, they're in Jerusalem praying this, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Boy, isn't that exciting. They understood these things. And what's more, this even becomes in the lives of individuals. Now, a lot of people say, okay, these are general things having to do with the moving of nations and everything. And of course, he had to do this with Jesus to get his way. But look what uh, Paul says in the book of Ephesians, that he says this to the church in Ephesus. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In other words, the Lord does what he wants. To say that he does it according to the counsel of his will means he does what he pleases to do. Isn't that exactly what it said way back there in the psalm that we looked at? Psalm 115, verse 3. And again, writing to the church in Philippi, it's not just the church in Ephesus. He brings it to the church Philippi. He says, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is moving everything in the direction that he desires. And this is so important because he is moving everything toward the total eradication of evil, the eradication of all sin, the eradication of all death. And some people will say, okay, if your God is so good and you say that he does whatever he wants, why is there bad stuff in the world? Can't we blame all this on him? No, we blame that all on sin because none of it existed until mankind sinned. And you say, well, that's not fair that Adam sinned and we got all this trouble. Okay, well, I'm sure you're free of sin, aren't you? Or might you have a share in it? Might you enjoy just a little bit the rebellion against God? See, none of us can point the finger at Adam. None of us can point the finger at God, for we ourselves have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we know it to be true. But God 
is moving everything toward the total eradication of evil and sin and death and all of those things. He's moving all those who would believe toward their destiny to know him and to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. He is building for himself a nation that was not a nation. It is the church and he's building them from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language on the earth through all of the ages. And he's doing it through difficulties. And he's doing it through blessing. And we get some of both right now. See, this great doctrine that God is absolutely in charge is critical to our hope and our perseverance. Because we've read the end of the story. He's made promises. Read the end of the book of Revelation. And he says that is what is absolutely coming. Jesus said, I'm coming back. And when I do, all this is coming with me. So we read the end of the story. God wins. We have to hang on and fight until the end. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know how it's going to unfold. And we don't know if he will return tomorrow or in another thousand years. We just don't know. And so what do we do? We hang on. We stay faithful. And we read the scriptures and we see, okay, God's in control. So I don't really have to fear. If I know him, he's made promises to me. He's going to deliver me. I will ultimately be with him forever. So I can trust in that because I read the Bible and I look into the past and he told Israel, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to bring nations upon you. I'm going to bless you when you're good, but it won't be so good when you're bad. And eventually I'll take you out of that land. But even when I take you out of that land, I'll eventually bring you back. You know what? He did it. And you know what? Israel's the only nation in the history of planet earth to have been brought back entirely from exile, not once, but think about it. Recent history, 1948, it's happened twice. Well, this is profoundly important for us to understand. God is doing what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is he wants to bless a multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language for all of eternity. Is that okay? Is it okay if it's a little bit of mess on the way? The difficulties we can fall into with this is some people will say, well, they'll accuse God of causing evil. Or they'll say, if God's predetermined everything, then our life is meaningless and our choices don't matter. Listen to how he addresses the people of Israel and the prophets. Does it sound like their choices matter? It absolutely matters. What about Habakkuk? All this was going to come upon the nation Israel. Habakkuk, this faithful one who appealed to God for understanding, who wanted to understand, it didn't change the future, but it changed Habakkuk. Because what he begins is, is almost an accusation against God, like how can you let these people behave this way? And it ends with the song, Lord, whatever you do, man, if I have no crops, if I have no livestock, if I'm sitting in the dust and the dirt, I'm still going to praise you because you're the God of my salvation. And I trust that you know what you're doing. The Bible makes this so clear. This is why you can't get an unbeliever to read the Bible because these truths leave them with no excuse. In fact, the Bible, as we're told in the New Testament, is designed to shut our mouths before God because he shows himself to be perfectly righteous, all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving and tremendously merciful. God made each and every human being as a living soul, a moral being with faculties for reason and decision-making. 
And that is what brings us to the second part of these great truths. Every human being, and indeed every nation, is responsible for his actions. It's illustrated here in the life of Assyria. It's illustrated in the book of Ezekiel. Let's take, uh, let's take these one at a time here. Here's what I want you to see. Here what we looked at in Isaiah. He does not so intend. Therefore he brings judgment upon them. In verse 12, the arrogance. The Lord has finished all the work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem. He'll punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria. And he did. And you can read about it right there in the book of Isaiah. Let's look how he explains this great truth in Ezekiel. Okay, because even though what we're seeing in Isaiah is these big sweeping movements by nation against nation, nation and empires expanding and God being in charge of all these things. Yeah, Syria is here now, but next is going to be Babylon. And oh, after Babylon, it'll be Persia. And he shot calls in the book of Daniel. He calls four in a row. He says, oh yeah, right now is this Babylonian empire, but after this will come Persia, and then will come Greece, and then will come Rome, and he lists them in order, and even describes them. Well, that's what God does. But while all these big things are happening, it's important to remember the individual soul. Ezekiel says it like this, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. Because, see, the temptation for many people is to see these great big sweeping things that the Lord is doing in the earth to bring judgment nation against nation and things of this nature and say, well, then it doesn't match much matter what I do. Oh yeah, look at these verses. It eternally matters what we do. And this is so important. This was Job's challenge, if you really think about it. Well, let's look at the early church real quick. Then we'll come back to Job. The early church believed this. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. He preaches this sermon. He points his finger in the face of the, some of those who were there chanting crucify him when Jesus was crucified. This was within months of Jesus being crucified. And he preaches this sermon. And then look at the people's response. Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent. and Be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All you have to do is repent, trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. In Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven. And we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Chapter 17, verse 30, Paul sums it up this way to the people in Athens as he's speaking to non-Jews. He's speaking to these people far outside of Jerusalem, culturally completely different. And he says this, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom, man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Yeah, God has given us assurance, all right. He has fulfilled the things he said he will do, and there are many more not yet fulfilled. And this was Job's challenge. You read the book of Job. He praises the Lord saying, the Lord gives 
and the Lord takes away. But yet, if you read the narrative, it was Satan who was the agent of destruction. It was Satan who took his family, who destroyed all those things. And yet Job never accuses God of evil, but he does say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But you know what's most fascinating about the book of Job? And I'm not going to give you a reference for it because I want you to read it. Later in the book of Job, Job gets to the point in his frustration where he says, why isn't there a go-between? Why isn't there a mediator between God and I that I could make my case? He was speaking of Jesus Christ. He didn't know it at the time. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He became the mediator. He became the one to come between God and man. In fact, he was God who took on man, manhood himself, and, and dwelt among us. And then paid the prices of man for sins. Sins he never committed. Sins of those who would believe. Boy, this is important stuff. And I hope that you're getting the gravity of it now. These two truths. That God is totally in charge. But yet, every human being is responsible for his actions. And let's end with these great encouragements. Because this indeed is a very encouraging uh, thing that we see happen here. First encouragement is this. Understand the prophets by knowing how God deals with the nations of the earth. Understand the prophets by knowing how God deals with the nations of the earth. Now you've read this. You've seen this in Isaiah. This is how God is still dealing with the nations of the earth. Jesus Christ came and that changed many things. That changed how it is we can relate to God, and, and now we know how our sins can be forgiven and everything else. But it didn't change how God's dealing with the nations. Why does one nation conquer another still to this day? By our nature and by human nature, by that I mean that without God, our default is to sin. Empires crumble. They start on a lot of good principles sometimes. Sometimes they lay out some really good ideas. Sometimes those ideals that they lay out that they found themselves upon are even godly ideals, such as the United States. But over time, because of the nature of mankind, because we are bent towards sin without God, we grow in corruption and the empire or the nation crumbles. Eventually it grows further and further from God, but then occasionally God, in his kindness, as peoples move further and further from him, he gives them a reset. He gives them a reset and he brings conflict with other nations and it turns people to repentance because when things are good and everybody's wealthy and all the bills are paid, you know, oh, let's uh, eat, drink and be merry. And the thoughts aren't for God because, frankly, people don't see their need for it. But in conflict, suddenly, there's a lot of people turning, trying to understand, trying to wrestle with life and its meaning, trying, in their fear of death, to determine, is there an afterlife? Is there any hope that I have? And they turn to God in repentance. And we see this, of course, in, in the history of our own United States has become less and less religious. It's become less and less um, God-fearing, so to speak. And although we founded it on some pretty good principles, testing it at the time, we founded it on the equality of men, but didn't get that right for a while. Still struggle with it to this day. 
But nevertheless, the principles were right. But yet, you see, as in every nation throughout history, we eventually depart from those things. So God in his goodness gives people continual resets. So understand the prophets by knowing how God deals with the nations of the earth. Next is this. Um, as people, uh, God is very just and says he will repay every evil deed. He is powerful enough to be able to do it, loving enough to be motivated to do it. We do what we can right now for justice and righteousness in the world. And we should seek these things at every moment. But ultimately, some battles are lost. Evil appears to triumph. But I assure you, it's only for a time. Each and every human being that has ever lived will give an account before God. And yet, even the evil they did, God turned it into good to build for himself this people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. God is just and will repay. Trust him in that. Don't despair when you see injustice upon the earth. Do your best to fight against it as much as is in you. But nevertheless, trust in him because he is the ultimate purveyor of truth and of justice in the world. Next, um, as people with dual citizenship, this is for the believers among us. Believers must engage with earthly authorities as ambassadors for Christ. Now, this is important because you're dealing with a relationship here of the lesser and the greater. As we speak of the fact that we are ambassadors for Christ, his is the ultimate and eternal kingdom, the kingdom that is over all other kingdoms. That's why Jesus is called King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We engage the world, therefore, with the authority of the Word of God, with a higher authority than our own governing authorities. And so when we see an unjust law, we must come to them and say, this is what God says, this is how this law ought to be, Thus saith the Lord right here in his holy word. And I know that's a radical idea, especially for people that have had drilled into their mind for decades a separation of church and state. This is never what was intended by our founding fathers as a separation. That the state should be informed by the church because the state, like it or not, whether it's printed on their money or not, whether it's stated at the beginning of the day in a pledge or not, every state is under God. And therefore, it is up to the people of God to inform the nations of the world of their sitting with God. And you don't think this is true? Take a look at the prophets of the Old Testament. Not all of them spoke to the nation Israel. You remember Jonah? Where was Jonah sent? Jonah was sent to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And he preached repentance there, or he just preached judgment there. They repented, and God held off their destruction for a full generation. Then a man named Nahum from Israel writes a letter to the Assyrians from God saying, basically, it's over, and brings condemnation upon Nineveh. And Nineveh was destroyed as God said it would be. But that's our role. We are here with the truth of God. We are those in connection with God by his word and by his Holy Spirit. And we therefore are those who ought to be informing the world of where God stands on these issues. And the Bible covers them all. But most importantly, and before all of that is relevant to you, understand this. Your own sins can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. And your heart changed. Are you ready for this? 
Because most people, their response to this is, yeah, I, I, I'm a sinner, but I just don't know. We doubt that we can be forgiven, or we doubt that this was really meant for us because we're just so bad, or we just don't think that we can straighten up our lives and walk with God. Well, let me tell you that if we were able to straighten up our lives ourselves in order to walk with God, then Jesus came and died for nothing. Because remember, he took our place in the wrath because we're unable to change. And what he offers, as was mentioned there as we looked at the book of Acts, uh, chapter 2, verse 38. Let me show that to you just real quick. He offers the promise of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The, what comes first is your repentance and your trust in God. Then what comes second is the walk that's worthy of it. Your own sins can be forgiven in Jesus Christ. And look at this, your heart changed by the very same power that moves the nations to his will. There is no excuse for ignoring the call of Jesus Christ this day because he has all authority to call you. He has all power to call you. And if you would but respond, he will take your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. And he will change your desires in your heart and make your desires for him and grant you peace that surpasses understanding. So while you live in this dark world with the nations fighting against nations, with the persecution and unrighteousness and everything else, Jesus Christ himself will change you on the inside and give you joy that even surpasses your circumstances that you can be a light in the darkness to the nations of the world, that you can be that solution that will change your family from the inside out, and you can be that one who can change your neighborhood and your community by bringing them the truth and shining the light of truth upon them, a truth that surpasses every bit of woe that happens in this world, the beauty of Jesus Christ and what he is bringing to this earth for all those who believe. Trust in him today for these things. Let's conclude with a word of prayer. Father God, we praise you this day for making yourself known. We thank you so much for revealing through the prophets and and giving us the ability to understand and to see your great truth. In your great wisdom, you are moving the world toward a time of eternal righteousness and goodness for your people to enjoy you forever. Lord, you didn't make a world that would have suffering and death and guilt and anxiety and depression and addiction but maybe for a short time. And Lord, those you call out of it will enjoy a world free from them forever. We pray, Lord, that that call has been heard today. And I pray for the faith of those who are listening, Lord, that wherever they are in their walk with you, that you will increase their faith, that they may take the next step, that they will endure to the end, and that they will know you, the joy of your salvation. We thank you, Lord all your goodness upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, 
I hope that's been helpful to you. Again, I hope you're reading the book of Isaiah. Many more sermons are to come. I'll probably end up having 20 or or so total in this series as we unfold this. And this is going to help you not just with the book of Isaiah, but with all the other prophets to understand what they are saying and understand the message of God that he has for us. So I invite you to continue to join us. Reach out to us if you would like to contact us. You can find out more about us at whitesrun.org whitesrun.org, or you can email me at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. I invite your questions and comments and concerns or whatever it is you'd like to communicate about it, uh, even if it's just a prayer request. I will get that and I will do that. I will pray for you. So may God bless you richly in the reading of his word.